Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager who truly understands the dynamics of the market and how to deliver impressive returns, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. We'll go from the first page, but let's do the exhibits first. Exhibit C, nothing much to report on oil. It would be $60 without the Saudis and some cooperation from Abu Dhabi. Demand is holding up okay in China, I think. China is a real question mark in terms of their whether or not they're in a recession or headed for a recession, which would be real GNP decline. But I think oil demand in China actually is holding up all right, better than other commodities. You can see the growth is in China and other Asia, US, Europe, Japan don't grow very much. But there is two or three million barrels of production being held off the market. That, those marginal barrels are the difference between $60 oil and $80 oil. So hopefully the Saudis will continue with their strategy. Exhibit B, which is natural gas, is new. There's more production here. The problem isn't demand because LNG continues to go up. LNG was under six Bs a day in 2019, and next year is predicted to be 14 and a half. The problem is production goes up faster, and the only other category that has gone up it's power. Power in 2019 was 30 bees a day, and now it's 35 bees a day. So we really need to have production growth moderate. The largest source of production growth is the Permian, which is associated gas. So $80 oil isn't necessarily good for that because there'll be more drilling and more associated gas. Exhibit A, I think we're going to be talking about more. This is the cash flow statement for the U.S. government. And we're going to be talking about that more in September as we get to the end of the month. And they need to keep the government going by signing some kind of a continuation of last year's spending. It'll be on everyone's mind in September. With that, I'd like to revert to the first page. I think we want to try to do couple things today. We want to get from Mike and Jason news on AI and news on chips, but why don't we why don't we do it page by page? Just see if there's anything 
regarding Apple or Alphabet or Tesla that has happened in the last week that's noteworthy? The biggest thing, I think, among the three is for Alphabet, they announced their version of the Microsoft Office Copilot for Google Suite, similarly priced at $30 a month. I believe they announced that yesterday. The other thing that's been discussed about Google is something that we've alluded to in the last few months, that the more there is a supply crunch in NVIDIA GPUs, it strengthens other competitors' positions. And you're seeing a good amount of interest going to Google. And it'll take some time to really figure out, does Google end up winning a bunch of additional cloud business because they have availability, where right now it's very difficult to get uh, availability of an H100. Tesla, maybe the only little bit of rumor that I would add that's there is Tesla has an AI chip called Dojo. And while they are obviously buying NVIDIA H100s, they are also developing and continue to develop their video processing AI chips. If you were to see something disruptive come from any of these three when it comes to AI, I would expect it most likely to be Tesla because Tesla would be most likely to do something disruptive like open source some hardware, hardware designs or something like that. Jason, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, well, as it relates to Tesla, as you said, if I think it might be on the software side if they release an algorithm. Everyone's been focused on textual processing all this year, but Tesla's been processing video and images for years now. So they could be much further ahead as, as far as that's concerned than any of these other companies. So they could potentially open source something. Elon's done a lot of that in the past. And maybe, you know, his self-driving stuff is, is, is a secret sauce, but maybe he does open source it. And a little bit of a counterpoint to Google, I guess, is uh, while they, they could be winning a lot of business since they don't rely on NVIDIA hardware as much, it's really where the data resides. And AWS and Microsoft and Snowflake hold a lot more corporate data than Google Cloud, I, I, I would imagine. So moving that volume of data is a bigger challenge, I think, than setting up the, the AI uh, algorithms and the training. Hey, Jason, this is a totally unfair question, but how hard or how soon do you think Apple would be able to come up with an iPhone that somehow you wanted it because it was more adept using Copilot or the Google version of Copilot? Or will it not make any difference? Well, they're going to announce the iPhone 15 in, I think, two weeks' time here. I would be shocked if it's in that one just because they they started working on that, you know, probably a year ago. I can't imagine it won't be in the next version in iPhone 16. I would bet they tout a lot of AI development in Siri or something like that, but mm-hmm. I agree, probably less likely to be baked into the hardware this time. I, yeah, I don't if if we get to a Qualcomm page, there's a Qualcomm and and I believe Facebook have been doing a little bit of that together. Right. Microsoft on page two, Mike and Jason, not to speak for them, but are pretty bullish about Copilot, such that they think it might add, I forget, 
you know, some significant number to free cash flow. I mean, free cash flow here for Microsoft is $60 billion. But I think Mike and Jason think it could add 15% or something to free cash flow if, it, if everyone's, you know, if half of all the people using Office or Windows bought Copilot. Oh, less than that. I think we assumed a third, of, if a third or a quarter used it, it would add about $30 billion to free cash flow. Holy smokes. Now, that doesn't include whatever they're going to spend on CapEx. So we know they're going to spend more on CapEx, but we also know they're diverting spend from other stuff to GPUs. So, um, you know, maybe it, maybe it's not that crazy. I, Mike and Jason were in Salesforce and came out. I'm afraid it was partly my influence insisting that Salesforce wasn't doing a very good job on free cash flow. But what kind of a job do you Mike, do you think they'll do on AI? They're positioned well, right? As Jason has reiterated, where the data resides, we think is most important. And since many organizations keep a lot of data in Salesforce, which is unique because Salesforce runs their own servers. They're so early in the cloud that they ran their own data centers. So... For those customers, it's going to be sort of a no-brainer to adopt the Salesforce product. Sales automation is probably also the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to applications of generative AI. So I, I do think that they're actually in a pretty good position. And, and you guys continue to be pretty positive about Snowflake for Jason's rationale that it's hard to move the data. Exactly. Hard, hard to move the data. They're a very sticky platform. And then they have that partnership with NVIDIA. So knowing that they hold the data, they're going to bring NVIDIA's compute and algorithms to their cloud, which when I say their cloud, they actually run on, on any of the hyperscalers' clouds. Um, so, you, so if your data exists in any of those providers, you can ultimately move to Snowflake and train on these language models. So I think that puts them in a great, great position. I'd also add that, remember that large language models are probabilistic. And a lot of the important data that an organization has is precise, or it needs to be deterministic. And, and that requires multiple layers of applications. You may have a large language model sit on top of other applications that do deterministic things. And I heard a recent analogy that resonated with me at least, it's we as humans are probabilistic beings, but if you want to do a calculation, you whip out a calculator, right? So it's think about it in that respect. With Snowflake, you've got all of, not, not, not just all of the corporate data and this relationship with NVIDIA, so you can have the large language model, but you also have all of the high precision data that the business operates on. So it's the perfect place to marry all of that in one spot. We do sort of think it's not everybody's recognized that yet. And it may take a little while before it becomes inherently obvious. But the wave of IPOs, you're going to see the, competitive, the private competitor data breaks, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the two of you use that rather than Snowflake. We've talked about it. Jason, do you have a view on that? Like which one, if you were going to implement a new project, which one you would use? Well, it's, it's been a while since I've been in that world, but 
at the time, Snowflake was kind of the preferred vendor just because they had more notoriety and recognition. But everyone that used either system were, were very happy with it. The high level that I would say is that for a more mature organization, maybe willing to take less risk from an IT and software development perspective, Snowflake seems like an obvious choice where if you're a startup or you have some very highly skilled software engineers, maybe Databricks would be a little more preferable in some ways. Right. And you look at the partnerships, so Snowflake partnered with NVIDIA and, and Databricks partnered and then bought Mosaic ML, which is was run by a group of very intelligent people, but they were also a startup that didn't have you know as much street cred, if you will. Right. I will add to Mike's point about the language models. I think ultimately is the language model becomes the interface to the human. And then instead of translating that into uh, text that comes back to us and maybe answers, I think that translates that into a query language that goes into the database. So you can free text, ask it questions. It translates that into machine code that then runs a structured query and provides you the you know the ground truth answer i and jason's been a closet optimist on oracle for at least nine months now and it seems to be coming true jason yeah well they they've they are the partner for nvidia's cloud so they've gotten their hands on a lot of the hardware at a at an outsized rate, a percentage than the other hyperscalers. So, so they have the capacity that they can rent out to customers where, you know, the other ones are capacity constrained. Right. And all the healthcare records and whatnot, that should be a fertile area to try to use AI, I assume. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're slow to adopt new technologies, but you would think it's, it's, it's prime for disruption. Right. I'm going to redo page three this weekend. We've talked a lot about NVIDIA and the others. Maybe we just leave page three to next week. Just any any particular news on 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 any of these NVIDIA or AMD or Intel or just say that last Wednesday was NVIDIA's earnings and it was the uh, the largest beat in history <laughs> of. <laughs> Any company, it was really impressive. And um, one thing, just to keep in mind, these markets are very cyclical. And right now we're in the boom. And we what, what we don't know is what's the sustainable number of inference machines or you know whatever H100s, whatever level of chips that are being sold, what's the right amount on an average run rate basis. We don't know. And until we start seeing some downstream revenue and ultimately profit generation, we won't really know. But I th- we think we're still somewhat in the growth stage of this thing. I noticed ChatGPT said they were doing uh, a billion dollars of revenue. I think they said $100 million a month. So that surprised me a little bit. I thought they were more just kind of an R&D shop taking money from Microsoft, but maybe there might even be free cash flow in, in, in OpenAI. Well, they also just had an announcement this week that they're releasing an enterprise version of ChatGPT. It does seem like they've put very little effort into their own products, more focusing on developing APIs 
rather than actually consumer-facing products. Nonetheless, it seems like enough enterprise customers have requested it. And to go back to a discussion we've had in prior weeks, an enterprise does not want their proprietary data leaking out, um, especially to get trained on by a large language model. So that's why we have pretty much any Fortune 500 company is telling its employees, you are in no way allowed to use ChatGPT. So it's no surprise that their employees probably are. They're probably trying to stop it. But at the end of the day, it's better to buy a product that's safe than it is to have your employees use a product that's not. So this enterprise product provides a guarantee that they're not using your data. And, of course, the standard enterprise level of administration. Is this a good time to have our... uh, theory on <laughs> Sam Altman. I'm going to leave it to Jason to explain this one. Yeah, we, Mike and I want to leave it on Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tee it up, though. It, so, uh, it turns, J- out, turns out to be right. We'll take credit with Jason if it turns out to be wrong. It's Jason's idea. <laughs> yeah, so Jason turns to me the other day, and he says, the Sam Altman guy, he's, he's kind of like a James Bond movie villain. Exactly. That's the image I, that keeps coming into my mind when I start thinking about him these days and there's it's been building and, and it kind of started with he co-opted OpenAI as this it was a non-profit to counterbalance google's ownership of a lot of ai algorithms um, and he co-opted it into his a for-profit enterprise then he cut the deal with microsoft in such a way to avoid ftc and regulatory scrutiny when they were going after literally any big tech acquisition then, you know, I keep beating the, the data is the moat drum. Um, I think he had that realization. Therefore, use the threat of destructive artificial general intelligence as a scare tactic to attempt to persuade Congress into providing him some regulatory capture. And um, the EU. And the EU, yeah. And then the EU enacted a bunch of rules that I think now he's upset with. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but the... Kind of the most devious and, and least public thing that he's done is more recently he's has this organization called WorldCoin with a very vague mission, and it, it appears that its only goal is to coerce millions of people into giving him their immutable biometric data through an iris scan. So he'll give you this you know worthless crypto token if you look into this device and it captures your biometric data. So they haven't come public with why he needs this, but it, you know, that, that ultimately in my mind is like a James Bond villain scheme where he's going to capture everyone's biometric data around the world. <laughs> it's conspiracy hour on yeah. Telltales. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. How, how exposed, Mike, do you think Amazon is here? Do you, I mean, will they lose enough cloud business to... The others, including Microsoft, or, or will they come through this, continue to try to get back to having free cash flow? How do you, how do you see Amazon's position here? We're all we're over on page four. So I, th- I think that they are going to stay the course of their strategy. And I think their strategy, obviously, they're going to get as many H100s as they need to. They're sort of lower on the tier of the cloud suppliers because they're not adopting the full NVIDIA kit. But Amazon's strategy is to commoditize the hardware. 
and they're a little bit behind in their silicon. But I would imagine that in the next 12 months, we have some pretty impressive silicon announcements coming from Amazon. And the question is, goes back to Jason's point about data and where it resides is most important. Is it sticky enough? You know, can they, can they get this new product on the market fast enough that their existing customers don't leave and go to Google or Oracle or Microsoft? So it's a little bit of a race against time, but I think their business model is probably really good. And that's what Amazon has always been very good at nailing the business model. The marketing's always been pretty bad. The timing maybe hasn't always been there, but in general, Amazon gets the business model right. And they are not NVIDIA. And if they tried to be NVIDIA, I would be worried. So I think it's, if you're, I think if, if you're an Amazon shareholder, keep holding and keep watching because I, I think they're doing some of the right things. And then Jason, Jason fingered Facebook or Meta early on uh, as having some real AI potential. Also, Meta and Apple in an odd kind of way becoming allies. I looked at Meta and I, I still don't, you know, I, they're, they're not performing on a free cash flow basis the way you like to see, see them. So, uh, Jason, how what kind of an update view do you have on Meta? Yeah, I, I liked them previously just based on how cheap they had gotten. And, and now that it's run up, I've, I haven't taken a hard look at it since then, but I expect it's not as attractive anymore. What I was alluding to earlier was Meta forming a partnership with Qualcomm, and they've they've decided to design a, a Qualcomm chip in such a way that it's optimized for Meta's Llama language models, um, and that should launch in phones, I believe, early 2024. So it, it's something we've kind of talked about Apple probably doing in the future, and and you know maybe in that iPhone 16, but. Qualcomm's gonna Qualcomm and Meta are gonna beat them to it early next year, uh, and Qualcomm needs that right because their recent results have been pretty weak. Right, right. Uh, you know, and there hasn't been a reason. Everyone upgraded their cell phones in probably 2021, and and there's not a compelling reason to buy a new phone these days. So, once you get language models and AI baked into the hardware and operating system, that might be the next, you know, must-have feature. I. We get to Charter and Comcast and AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile. I think we covered those all pretty well a couple of weeks ago. The next page is MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal. And I think we did a pretty good job saying that if you're really interested in payment, the two that seem most reliable and seem to survive whatever happens is MasterCard and Visa. That gets us to... Walmart and Target, that page needs to be updated. Uh, I think we should put that off for another week or two. The uh, next page after that are the big oil companies. And I did not update those last weekend, and I'm not going to get to them this weekend. But they're all kind of range-bound, I would say. And, uh, you know, not, not bad companies, but trading in the range. One of the advantages of having so many companies to look at every week is you get a sense for value. They're kind of flattish, I would say, over the next couple of years. Obviously, the free cash flow down considerably from last year, which the update will show. But even on last year's 
cash flow, they're 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 in the you know ten eleven percent range. They're good companies, and you know in time will work out fine. But that characteristic is more prevalent on page ten. This these this has been updated. Kinder Enterprise, Energy Transfer, and Western, and these companies are stuck. The reason they're stuck it, it, it is that they have a fair amount of debt and they have a dividend commitment. And when you run through it all, take Kinder Morgan, they have four billion of free cash flow, but you go through interest, dividends, and stock repurchase, and you're down to really no cash flow after those items. So they don't get their debt paid off. And their capex seems to be just enough to try to keep them flat rather than inclining. So now these companies are trading at free cash yields in the, you know, six, seven, eight percent range. That those seem I mean they're fine and if you own them, terrific. And the dividends will go up maybe three or four percent a year. But you know, a six or seven Eight percent free cash yield going up three four percent a year only gets you back to about a ten percent return. Not as interesting as some other things in our twenty pages. Page eleven is the more diversified upstream companies, and doing those this weekend. But I, I have had a look at the ten uh, Qs and whatnot, and I think what we'll see is that these companies will be trading, you know, ten or eleven percent free cash yield. And some of them will be able to increase their production, maybe 5%, 6%. So, you know, basically look more attractive than, than the midstream companies from that point of view. Page 12 was updated. These are the gas companies. We talked about gas earlier. Here, there's 6 or 7% free cash yields. It's, you know, gas was $5 last year. It's going to be 280 this year. And the question is, when will it get back into the threes? So these these companies are not bad investments, but it really depends on gas production growth being more limited. The next page is page 13 is JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. These companies are are, you know, in the eight, nine percent free cash yield, ten percent free cash yield pretty hard to get them to grow in this environment, I think, but all very well-run companies. They're on the next page, page 14 has two, you know, there's a lot of this stuff about onshoring manufacturing. Two of the really good manufacturing businesses in the world are Caterpillar and Deer, and they do have free cash flow. And once again, there should be some growth. I mean, Caterpillar is absolutely essential to uh, a lot of construction activity and deer is absolutely essential to agricultural activity. But, you know, again, at six, seven percent free cash yields, you know, kind of kind of pricey. Mike and Jason, as I whip through these pages and we look at relative free cash yields and whatnot, you know, we're trying to judge them against something that, you know, has a, a gap up like NVIDIA. And of course, we look at it. We say, "Oh my goodness, it's it's a two percent free cash yield or a one percent free cash yield or whatnot." But when a lot of these really well constructed companies, well managed companies, are trading at six or seven percent free cash yields, how high would you have to get the free cash yield 
on a NVIDIA or a Microsoft or an Apple or whatnot to prefer owning those companies as compared to these more mature companies. Any views? Um, yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's, not a, it's not an exact science. I mean, it is sort of, but the truth, it, you know, you can't, you know, trees don't grow to the sky, right? So one of the things you tend to see in these cycles, like NVIDIA is in right now, is building assumption that the status quo continues on into the future. And one thing we do know is that that never happens. So there's a bit of a weird market psychology thing there. We don't know the, the growth rate for the company in the long term, but we can estimate it. We can't really know the, the growth rate of the company in the medium term either. You know, in hindsight, looking back, you know, a year ago, when the video was a hundred bucks a share and ChatGPT had come out, there was there was a window where it was pretty clear that there was going to be a lot of demand for this, and Nvidia did run up with it. It appeared very expensive at the time. It was you know well over a hundred times free cash flow. It appeared worse than it actually was, though, because they had taken a bunch of inventory write-downs and they were on the backs of a very bad quarter, sitting on a bunch of bad inventory. All that is to say is there's, there's no exact science, but what we try to do is look at what's the long-term trend. And in our minds, since we first started investing in NVIDIA, artificial intelligence back in 2015, 2016 was this weird little niche nerdy thing, but... We saw how powerful it was, and our broad assumption is just, we're going to do more of this. Calling the top is a much more difficult task. Um, so I'll refrain from trying to make an unreasonable prediction. But at 40 times free cash flow, with this type of growth, they're probably in a pretty good spot. Yeah, we've run out of time, so uh, Jason gets off the hook. But we'll start off next week asking Jason where that next nerdy, out-of-the-way cash flow is that we can all <laughs> try to exploit. Take care, everyone. Stay well and stay healthy. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.